Truth number one, God does not show favoritism in judgment. This is a marvelous truth about the character of God, that in judgment, God does not show favoritism. Romans 2.11 says, for there is no favoritism with God. Now, the word favoritism in Greek is a difficult, it's a difficult word to translate into English because it is a Greek idiom. In English, we have all kinds of idioms, like you need to get your ducks in a row, or I have a bone to pick with you, or uh, right before I came on to preach, someone said, Dan, break a leg. Now, what does that mean to, to break a leg? A little help here, what does that mean if someone says? Good luck, good luck. Now, how do you get good luck out of break a leg? I don't really know, but we know what it means. We know what that means. Every language develops idioms, and this word is an idiom in the Greek language, making it a little bit difficult to understand exactly what the word means. And so the word literally means face receiver. Favoritism in the original language means face receiver. In judgment, God is not a face receiver, which means God does not take into consideration external factors in judgment. Years ago, uh, my wife Meg was driving home from Arkansas with our five little kids, and she was all by herself. I wasn't with her. And uh, she calls me, and she's crying, and I can hear all of my young children crying in the background, and I'm thinking to myself, what is going on here? What is happening? And she says, Dan, I got pulled over, and I don't know where our insurance card is. Our kids can't stop crying. I can't stop crying. What do I do? Now, my first thought was, this is a bummer situation, but my second thought was, baby, you need to keep crying. You need to cry, but you need to keep crying. Like, pour it on, start wailing, do what you got to do, because there's no way that a cop is going to give this hot mess of a van a speeding ticket. And so I said, pinch our kids, whatever, whatever, pinch them, <clears throat> get them to cry. No, I didn't say that part. And sure enough, the cop said, lady, you look like you have, a, you have bigger problems to, to solve. And so he let her off, have a nice day. Now, what happened there is that the cop took into consideration Meg's beautiful and crying face and said, You're, go free, go free. But in judgment, God does not receive face. When you stand before the Lord, he will not receive your face. He does not take into consideration your family history. He will not take into consideration your skin color, your level of education, how much money you have <clears throat> or don't have, how famous you are, how successful you are. In judgment, God will hold you accountable for everything you've ever done. Every thought, every motive, every deed, every word, everything you've forgotten about, God will not receive your face in judgment, and he will hold you accountable. Romans 2, 11, for there is no favoritism with God. Now, the Apostle Paul anticipates an objection, and the objection he's thinking about is, aren't the Jews the favored people of God? Aren't the Jewish people the chosen people of God, Paul? How can you say that God does not have favorites, that there is no favoritism with God in judgment? How can you say that if God has chosen a people from him, from, for himself? Doesn't God have a special relationship with Israel? The Jews certainly believed this to be the case. The Midrash, which is an ancient Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, says, In the age to come, Abraham will sit at the gate of Gehenna, hell, and will not permit a circumcised Israelite to go down there. So that they had this image of Abraham, that Abraham is going to stand at the gate of hell, and if anyone is circumcised, that he won't let them go to hell. They will go to heaven, because God has a, a favored people, the Jewish people. The Jews would have said, what do you mean, Paul? There's no favoritism with God. We are the people 
of God. Now here's Paul's answer to that objection, verse 12. For all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. There are two observations we need to notice. First, your level of knowledge becomes the standard by which God judges you. So on the day when you stand before the Lord in judgment, your level of knowledge will become the standard by which God will judge you. I wish my level of knowledge became the standard by which God judged judged other people, but that's not the way it works. It's my level of knowledge becomes the standard by which God will judge me. He says, all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. The Jewish people had the law. They were under the law. God had given them the law. They heard the law read week after week in the synagogues. They knew the law. But what about people who don't have the law? What about people who don't have the truth of God's word? What about people who don't have the gospel of grace today? The modern version of this question is, how will God judge people who have never heard the truth of God's word? How is God going to judge them? Uh, People in Africa, the Middle East, in India, or wherever it is, who have never heard the gospel. How will God judge them? If God is a God without favoritism and judgment, how will he judge them? Verse 12. For all who sin under the law will also perish, or I'm sorry, for all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. So if you sin without the law, that, those, would be, those would be the Gentiles, the Gentile world, people who are not under the law of God. Those who sin without the law, the Gentile world, will also perish without the law. You don't need the law of God in order to sin. You can sin as much as you want to sin. In fact, you see in Noah's day that the world reached the apex of sin to the point where God said, I must bring a flood on the world. There's so much sin in the world that God brought a flood on the world. You don't need the law of God in order to sin against God. And so on judgment day, God will not pull out a book that people have never read and hold them accountable for it. He will not do that. Now, does that mean that people in Africa, the Middle East, China, that they're off, they're off the hook? They, they will survive judgment because they, they can say, God, I, I didn't know about the book of Deuteronomy. I didn't know about the book of Leviticus. I didn't know about the book of Genesis. I'd never read your word. Does that mean that they're off the hook? Well, observation number two is that ignorance is not a path to salvation. Ignorance is not a path to salvation. Some indirectly argue this position. Some people will say if people don't have the law of God, if they've never heard the truth of God's word, if they've never heard the gospel, God would never send those people to hell because that would be unfair. But Paul is saying ignorance is not a path to salvation. He says in verse 12, for all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. God will judge them according to the level of knowledge that they have. And you need to think about this for a moment because if ignorance was a path to salvation, then the most hateful thing you could ever do is tell someone about Christ. If all you had to do to go to heaven, to to enter into eternal life, is be ignorant of the gospel, ignorant of the truth of God's word, then you would never tell anyone about the truth of God's word. You would be jeopardizing people's salvation. Paul is saying the issue is not having the law or not having the law. That's not the issue in judgment. The issue is keeping the law or not keeping the law. It's obedience to God versus disobedience to God. Romans, 12, or Romans 2, 13 says, for the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, 
The hearers of the law are not righteous before God. Just hearing the word of God does not make you right with God. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Those who do the law will be justified. Now, the Apostle Paul here is not arguing that the way to be justified before God is you just need to, you need to keep the law. And once you keep the law, then God gives, gives you salvation as a reward. That's not what he's saying. He's arguing, we're going to see this argument unfold throughout the book of Romans. He's arguing that obeying God is the fruit of justification. If you have been saved by God's grace, if you have been justified by the grace of God, then the fruit of your justification is that you will obey God from the heart. You will obey him. You will manifest righteousness in your life. And so obeying God is the fruit of justification, not the root of justification. It's not the cause of your justification. And so God says that there is no favoritism, or Paul says that there is no favoritism with God. So if you have the law of God, you'll be judged according to the law of God. If you don't have the law of God, you'll be judged according to the level of knowledge that you do have. Truth number two is that you are a self-conscious moral agent. God does not show favoritism in judgment, and you are a self-conscious moral agent. Self-consciousness is defined as having knowledge of one's own ex- existence, especially the knowledge of oneself as a conscious being. So what does it mean to be conscious, self-conscious? It means you know you exist. You know you exist. I know I exist. This is what philosophers call the self-conscious I. I exist. I know I have an inner life. And part of being created in the image of God is that we are self-conscious and we are moral agents. You can't try. I mean, even if you try to, to, to not be a moral agent, it's very difficult to do this. We are moral agents. We have a deep sense of what is right and wrong. We are not animals. Moral agency is defined as the ability to discern right from wrong and therefore to be held accountable for your decisions. You have the ability to discern. You look at a situation You look at yourself and you know what is right and you know what is wrong. It doesn't mean that people are perfect in their discernment. It just means that we are moral agents. We have the capacity to observe a situation that's right and that's wrong. And since we are able to discern right from wrong, we can therefore be held accountable for our choices, for our decisions. And Paul's argument is that all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, whether you're under the law or not under the law, all people are self-conscious moral agents. And this is where the word of God and the godless world clash. God's word says something, and our world says something that's exactly the opposite regarding human nature. Our culture says something like this, that people are born as a clean slate. That people, they, little babies, they come out of the womb, and they're just a clean slate. When you're looking at the baby, a clean slate. And like any good lie, there's a nugget of truth baked into that lie. Uh, Of course, in one sense, when a baby comes out of the womb, they're a clean slate. They can learn and they can develop in a variety of ways. But this is how the lie is defended. Argument number one is that language, culture, language, cultures, and customs are socially constructed. They are socially constructed. So, for example, I was born in Ames, Iowa. So I was born a cyclone. I was actually born in Jack Trice Stadium, if you didn't know that. That's one (laughs) detail, interesting detail about me. No, but I learned English. I learned English, grew up in the Midwest. That is the culture that I know. But if I was born, exact same me, if I was born not in names, but in Hong Kong, I would have learned a different language and I would have learned a different culture. 
And so there, there is truth in the claim. There is truth in the claim that language, cultures, and customs are socially constructed. Argument number two, morality, sexuality, and gender are also socially constructed. Because morality, sexuality, and gender are part, are part of the culture and customs. So those are socially constructed as well. This means that morality, sexuality, and gender, they're not objective. They're just your opinion. They're social constructs. So your sense of what a man is, your sense of what a woman is, your sense of what sexuality is, your sense of right and wrong is just your opinion. That's all that it is. That's just your opinion. And if people had different opinions, then there would be different realities. And you shouldn't press your opinions on other people, you bigots. That's, that is the tone. That is the nature of what is being talked about in our culture. Now, what does the word of God have to say about this lie? Remember, the, the, the lie, the, the lie is that all the way down to the very bottom of, of a human being is that people are a clean slate. They can become whatever. Morally neutral. That's all they are. Sexuality not defined at all. Maleness, female, being male or female, social constructs. Now, what does God's word have to say? Verse 14. So when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, that's what it means to be a Gentile in so many ways. You don't have the law of God. You're separate from the chosen people of God, the nation of Israel. So when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Paul is arguing that Gentiles do not have the law and they do have the law. They do not have the law written on tablets of stone. They don't have the Ten Commandments spelled out. They don't have the Old Testament. They don't, they don't have that given to them by God. But God has written the work of the law on their hearts. This means that morality is objective. There is a real right and wrong. There is real goodness and real evil in the world that God has stamped every human being. He has written his law on their hearts. Now, Paul is not saying that all Gentiles keep the law. That's not his point. He's not saying the Gentiles keep the law. He, he, he's not saying that they have a perfect understanding of, of morality. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that people are basically good. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that people know what basically good is. He knows what, we, we know what, what it means to be good, but we are not basically good. We know there is a right and a wrong. And he says they show it. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. How do they show it? Well, by the way that they live. You cannot live like everything is morally equivalent. You can't live that way. It doesn't matter where you're born, what time period you're born into, what culture you're born into. You cannot pretend that everything is morally equivalent. You cannot pretend that murder is okay. You can't. You can't pretend that lying is okay. Kidnapping other people is okay. Raping people is okay. Stealing from others is morally neutral. Taking someone's wife or husband is morally neutral. And see, when morality is just a theoretical exercise, you're just thinking about it abstractly, when good and evil is just theory, then you can pretend that morality is subjective. It's just your opinion. But one scholar said, you can pretend that morality is relative until you get punched in the face. And I like that statement. You can pretend 
that morality is relative until you experience evil. And the moment you experience evil, then you say, that was evil. Like when someone breaks into your house, if someone breaks into your house and beats you up and takes all your stuff, you don't think, wow, what a beautiful expression of different cultural values. That was beautiful. Wow. You don't say that. You don't think that. What do you say? Has anyone ever broken into your home? Has your car ever been stolen? What do you say? Wrong. That's what you say. That was wrong. That was evil. There is good and there is evil. You know, the world has been watching what Hamas has been doing to Israel over the last couple of weeks. Raping people, killing people, burning people alive, beheading them, kidnapping them. And you don't think, I don't care, it doesn't really matter who you are. You don't think what a beautiful expression of different cultural values. You don't think that. Now, certainly there is moral blindness. Paul knows that there is moral blindness. So some people will look at what is evil and they'll call it good. But that's a curse. Woe to you who call good evil and evil good. Paul's, he's not saying that people have a perfect understanding of morality. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying that we have a basic understanding. Not a perfect understanding, but a basic understanding. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. And then he says, their consciences confirm this. Their consciences confirm this. <clears throat> that part of being created in, in the image of God, that God, is that God has given you a conscience. He's giving you a conscience. Now, I want to give you three truths quickly about the conscience to help us understand what's going on here. Number one, your conscience is the part of you that knows. What is the conscience? It is the part of you that knows. The word con means with. Science means knowledge. Knowledge. It means with knowledge. Your conscience is the part of you that knows. Your conscience knows what you know. Your conscience knows what you know. So if you get pulled over going 65 miles per hour and you say to the police officer, oh, I thought it was six, I thought the speed limit was 65. I didn't realize that it was only 50 miles per hour. Your conscience says, yes, you did. You did know. You did know. Number two, your conscience judges your inner life. Your conscience judges your inner life. Thomas Cranmer says, what the heart loves the will chooses, and the mind justifies. How does our inner world work? What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. And I would add to this statement, your conscience judges what your heart loves, your will chooses, and your mind justifies. What's happening with your conscience? Your, your conscience is not your heart. Your conscience is not your heart. It is a judge. It is an umpire calling balls and strikes. That was good. That was bad. Again, your conscience is not infallible. It's not perfect. But it's been given to you by God. It is, a, it is an impartial judge in its design. It is an impartial judge calling balls and strikes. And this is why we experience conflict in our souls. We have conflict in our, in our souls because our heart is justifying our mind is justifying what our heart wants all the time. That's what we do. Our mind is constantly justifying, and our conscience is speaking to that inner life, the inner world. This is why we have conflict. I remember several years ago, my kids went, went out trick-or-treating, 
And when they go trick-or-treating, they sprint everywhere. They, they cover every house within a 10-mile radius, it feels like. I mean, they hit every house. And they had a really good night, really good weather. And uh, when they got home, they were basking in the glory of their candy. I mean, they, it was incredible. They loved, that. They loved the, their candy, and they dumped it all out uh, on the living room floor. And then they started to categorize the candy. Do your kids do this? I don't know, maybe. But they started to categorize all the candy. So the Laffy Taffy over here, Jolly Ranchers, Snickers, everything. And they were, they were having a, a great time. And then they went to bed. And I said, it's time to collect the dad tax. I'm going to take some, some of the candy here. And uh, I took four Reese's peanut butter cups from my son, Titan. Now, why four? Well, he had a, a huge pile of Reese's peanut butter cups. And I thought, he's never going to notice. And I enjoyed them. And uh, then I destroyed the evidence, obviously. And I went to sleep. Now, the next day... This is when Ty was really little. So the next day, four-year-old Titan Timothy, he walks up to me. He looks right at, looks right at me. He says, Dad, we need to talk. <laughs> That's what he said. We need to talk. And he said, Dad, when I went to bed, I had 18 Reese's peanut butter cups. <laughs> and now I only have four, or 14. I only have 14 Reese's peanut butter cups. Now, there arose in my soul a conflict. There arose in my soul a conflict. That, remember, the conscience judges what the heart loves peanut butter cups, Reese's peanut butter cups, what the will chooses and the mind justifies. My first thought was, Titan, your existence depends on me. I can eat all of your candy if, if I want to. That's, there's a part of me that says, yeah, yeah, what are you talking about? I can eat all of your candy. You sleep in my house. But then my conscience says, you stole candy from a four-year-old boy. <laughs> Conflict. Conflict. Now, this is a silly situation, but all of us have had that experience where our heart wants something that we, we know is not right. We want something that we know is not right, and then we choose it, and then we justify it, and then our conscience condemns us. Our conscience says, you should not have done that. And we experience guilt. And this is by the design of God that our conscience judges the inner world. Number three, your conscience is warning you about the day of judgment. Your conscience is warning you about the day of judgment. And this is why we have to understand this, just how serious this is, that your con- what's happening in your soul when your conscience is calling balls and strikes is that it's warning you of coming judgment. Let me ask you a question. Do you know that there's a day of judgment coming? Like if you were to die and stand before God in judgment, could you look at God and say, I had no idea that there was a day of judgment? We all know it. Why do we know it? Because of our conscience. Our conscience produces a sense of guilt when we don't live up to the standard that we know to be right. And so guilt is a universal experience because people have the, the, the law of God written on their hearts. They have a conscience, and their conscience condemns. The conscience convicts, and we feel guilt. Guilt is a universal experience. Why? Because we're guilty. We feel guilty because we are guilty. We feel guilty because we are guilty, and we can try to suppress our conscience. Our conscience can be annoying, and so we can try to suppress it. That's one of the primary reasons people drink alcohol, not the only reason. 
It's one of the primary reasons people drink alcohol all the time. It's to suppress their conscience so that they can do what they know they ought not to do. This is one of the reasons people use drugs because when they're sober, their conscience gets at them. And then so you get high and then you do a bunch of things that you know you ought not to do. Then you feel your conscience condemning you. This is why we love churches that lie to us. We love it. We love going to churches where people stand up with the Bible and tell us what we want to hear. Paul says, in the last days, people will gather teachers for themselves who will scratch their ears, tell them what they want to hear. We want to suppress our conscience, and we hope if we just persist in our sin, persist in our lying, persist in our behavior that we know that is not right, maybe our conscience will begin to die out, and it does. Our conscience when we're younger, tends to be louder. But after we push through our conscience, it usually gets much more quiet. And we just hope we can dr keep drowning it out. But see, your conscience on the day of judgment will testify against you. Your conscience will be called as a witness to testify against you. Not someone else's conscience, yours. Look back at verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. So this happens now. We experience this now. This is what the conscience does now. But Paul has a day in mind. Look back at the verse, verse 15. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them when? On the day when God judges what people have kept secret what people have kept secret. So when will your conscience stand and testify against you on the day you stand in the presence of God to be judged? And notice what God will judge. He will judge what people have kept secret. There is so much smugness in the world, so much self-righteousness in the world. People walk around with so much confidence in themselves. And what's at the heart of that worldly confidence so often is that people know that other people don't know who they are. They know, you don't know what I've been looking at, what I've been saying, what I've been doing. You don't know and you can't get at me. But Paul says, the very nature of God's judgment, if he is to be impartial without favoritism is that he must judge the secret life. If he is a righteous judge, he must judge the secret life. The most obvious limitation that we have in judging other people is that we don't know the heart, we don't know the motives. But God sees the heart perfectly. He sees our inner world perfectly, as if it's done in broad daylight. And so he will judge our hidden world. I mean, can you imagine that day? Just imagine if the last month of your life, if the last month of your inner life could be projected up on a screen. Your inner dialogue, all the motives of your heart made manifest. Everything you watched on your phone, your tablet, your computer, all of your private conversations with yourself 
and other people, everything you whispered behind people's backs, if all of it, all of it, all of it came rushing into the presence of our church, would you want to show up that day? Luke 8, 17, for nothing is hidden, is what Jesus says, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. The day of judgment is the day when everything will come into the light of God's glorious presence. And every one of us, me, all of us, will be found guilty, worthy of hell, and you will agree with it. You will agree with it. You will not fight. You will agree with it. Now, how is God judging the secrets of our heart? Part of the gospel. That's one of the questions I've been thinking about all week. How is God judging the secrets of our hearts? Part of the gospel, verse 16. On the day when God judges what people have kept secret, according to my gospel, through Christ Jesus. On the day when God judges what people have kept secret, according to my gospel, according to it, in line with the gospel. How is that good news? Well, here's the truth. You will never see the glory of Christ until you feel the gravity of sin. You will never glory in Christ. You'll never see his glory, his greatness, until you understand the gravity of sin. The cross will never be good news to your heart until you, until you are convinced you deserve hell. The cross will never be good news to your heart until you're convinced you deserve hell. Some, some, some of us, I know I do this, I think we all do this, we use the Bible in such a way where we stand on top of it and we look down on other people I'm better than you because I don't do all these things. We're like the Pharisee in Luke 17. Matthew 13, 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. This is a picture of what it's like to become a Christian. What do Christians do? Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Why would anyone joyfully sell everything, leave everything, give up everything to follow Christ. Why would anyone ever do that? Well, the most basic fundamental conviction of of the Christian heart is that what you gain in Christ is infinitely more valuable than what you would ever give up for him. That's why you would joyfully sell everything, because what you gain in Christ is infinitely more valuable than anything you would ever give up for him. So you joyfully sell everything. You say, Christ, you're my God. You're my king. You're my savior. And that conviction is rooted in the understanding that there is a day of judgment. And if I stand in my own righteousness, I will die. If I get justice, I'm dead. But the good news of the gospel is that because of what Christ has done for us, all of our sins and all of our judgment has already happened at the cross. I'm not saying there isn't a day when we will stand in the presence of God and be judged for our life. We certainly will be. But the decisive judgment for our sin, the payment of our sin, happened at the cross. We were condemned in Christ. Our sins were paid for by Christ at the cross. 
that his blood was shed. He died because the wages of sin is death. He was condemned because I deserve, you deserve condemnation. And there at the cross, he died to take away our sins. He was judged in our place for our sins. And because of that, now, as Christians, we know we are forgiven. If you're a Christian, you have been forgiven. You're clothed in the very righteousness of God. Paul is going to go on to say in Romans chapter 8, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, I'm sorry, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. All of our judgment, it's gone. Why? Because Christ took it from us at the cross. That's good news for our soul, but we will never see the glory of what Christ has done. We will never marvel at his love until we understand the most fundamental reason you should become a Christian is so that you don't go to hell. So that you're reconciled back to God. Now, what do we do with this information? Two quick points of application. Number one, you need to repent and believe the gospel. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to repent and believe the gospel. If you know you're guilty of your sin, of committing sin against God, if you know you deserve hell and you want Christ and you want to be forgiven and you want to have a new life in him, you should repent and believe the gospel. Put your trust in him, understanding that forgiveness is a gift that God gives to guilty sinners. It's a gift that is received by faith alone in Christ. So if you're not a Christian, you should turn and believe the gospel. Number two, develop your secret life. My dear brothers and sisters, you have a secret life. You have a life that no one knows about. All of us do. That's part of being a human being. And my challenge for you is that you would love and worship Christ in your secret life, in the world that no one knows about. Why? Because who you are in secret, who you are when no one is watching, is who you are. That is who you are. And God wants to change that man. He wants to change that woman. He wants to make that person more like Christ. So Christ is inviting us, certainly, to grow in our love for Christ together as a body. He's inviting us to go deeper in our walk with Christ together. That's what it means to be a Christian, is that we belong to one another. And he's inviting us to go deeper with him in our secret life. The world that no one knows about. Matthew 6, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly I tell you, they have their reward. See, the Pharisees were the most religious people on the planet. Jesus says in Matthew 23, they do everything to be seen by people. Everything they do is to be seen by people. And Jesus says, don't be like that. If your worship of Christ is totally dependent on other people watching you, you have to wonder, are you really worshiping Christ? So here's Jesus' instruction, and this is the instruction for us, for you, for me. But when you pray, go into your private room. Now, I'm all about church prayer meetings. We should do those. We should do those a lot. And when you pray, go into your private room, shut the door, and pray to your Father. Look at how God the Father is described. 
and pray to your Father who is in secret. I love that description of God. Your Father who is in secret. Isn't he everywhere? Omnipresent? Yep. Your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. There's so much power and joy that comes from having a clear conscience. There's so much power and joy that comes from worshiping God in secret to know, to know you're walking with God. You're not perfect, but you're walking with God, that you really love God. There's so much power and joy to obeying Christ when no one is watching. And so brothers and sisters, we need to hold on to our common life together in Christ. We worship him together and we need to walk deeply with him in our secret lives. That's the type of people we want to be. When no one is watching, we're still worshiping him. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you.